I am Max Folkman. This is Script Locked, where we talk about storytelling in video games. And I'm Nick Folkman. Uh, today's guests are Rob Foreman and Andrew Walsh. Rob was a writer on Indivisible for Lab Zero Games, along with Spider-Man 2 for Insomniac Games, and has most Ooh. recently been working on exciting film and TV projects that we can't mention. And he's also the co-chair of the Writers Guild West, West LGBTQ Writers Committee. Uh, Andrew has worked as a writer, narrative designer, narrative director, story consultant, and more on such games as Horizon Forbidden West, Horizon Call of the Mountain, Watch Dogs Legion, The Division, Prince of Persia, Fable Legends, and many, many more that you can see on his website. He's also currently the tre- treasurer of the Writers Guild of Great Britain. Uh, I forgot no, to ask not, earlier, no, is that still true? Not, not anymore, no. no um, I have done, I was in the past. Uh, I'm currently on, on the video games committee, uh, but I, I took the other hat off uh, a, a while ago. I've, again, I've worn many hats with that organization. Then, let me just keep that in. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least they, they have a video game committee. Yeah. yeah. We're going to get into that, I'm well, yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll get into that. <laughs> yeah. And, and also, it's really weird because you said, like, we can't pause, but I just kind of keep going, wow, every time, like, you just listen to everyone's uh, achievements. It's, it's brilliant to, to be in your company. Yeah. It's always brilliant to be Rob's company. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> and then, before I start... Uh, I'd like to remind listeners that anything I say on this podcast does not represent the views of Insomniac Games or Sony Interactive Entertainment. Rob doesn't have to worry about that because he doesn't work there anymore. It's true. And then, yeah, thank you both for coming on. This is already very fun. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Then we'll start off first. How did both of you break into video games? We'll go with Rob first. Uh, well, so I, I, uh, I'm kind of in awe of Andrew's video game credits because I've always been such a, a fan of um, the medium. And most of my career, as you can probably tell from what was listed out, is in TV and film. Um, I did some work on uh, an independent crowdfunded game called Indivisible because I knew one of the developers uh, when they were doing the crowdfunding. And he was like, hey at the time, like we were in a final fantasy 14 free company together. Uh, we're both gay gamers. Um, <laughs> do, do you want to try your hand at this? Do you want to contribute, um, send in a script? Uh, and so I got to do some outlining and some initial draft work on that, uh, game indivisible and then, uh, was back in TV for a while. And, uh, then a mutual friend of the Falkman's, uh, mentioned that there might be a writing opening at a little company called Insomniac, and uh, she had no idea what it might be for, and I had no idea what it might be for, except that I was already a fan of some Insomniac properties. Um, and so, again, I threw my hat in the ring, and uh, you know, interviews and tests went well, and uh, was there working on a game that I can now at least tell the title of, of Spider-Man <laughs> 2, um and that's probably about it um yeah that was yeah. that was my path it was it was personal connections to be honest and a passion for the for the art form yeah we had recommended that friend for the opening for the job and then she got scooped up by sony santa monica and we, everyone was very angry because she was so good but she's like actually guys you want to know someone who's as good as me rob foreman and then we we're like no way but then she was right <laughs> 
this is why you hang out with people back in the before times uh, at Writers Guild events is you get to know them even if we've never worked together. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you had been playing games before you worked at Indivisible, Rob. I had, yes. Were you interested in writing for games before then or just like, just like you weren't even thinking about it? I was really, I really had horse blinders on about working in television for a while. Um, and yeah, I really hadn't been thinking about it because I was so focused on TV. Um, and then when I got the first taste of it, um, on an indie, you know, level, like the, I definitely wasn't the big, it wasn't the, the most, smooth transition like typing dialogue into excel like that was that was very strange for me but uh yeah i i enjoyed it and uh wanted to pursue it more so that last question before i get to Ra, to get to andrew since you're working in film and tv land right now what do you miss about working in video games if anything <laughs> um I actually really missed the collaboration because um, I, I will say, you know, Insomniac does this uh, great, um, you know, obviously just put out like a corporate culture video for the entire Internet to see the daily interaction with people both in the writing uh, world and in the other departments uh, is something that, uh, especially once a game gets into production, is something that you don't have right now in writing for TV and film where the process has really been bifurcated. It used to be that you would be writing a TV show and the writer's room would be going and production would be going and you were constantly in touch with, you know, the camera department and the prop department and, uh, down the line, you know, uh, casting, um, post-production, uh, and those things have really been separated by um, streaming. Um, and I definitely miss collaborating with artists and art forms that I have absolutely no skill in. <laughs> and I'm just in awe. It's like I send something into a black box and something pops out and I'm like, teach me your ways. How did you do this? I love it. But Andrew, how did you get into the games industry? Good question. Um, uh, I still look back and, um, and ask myself that as well. Like, how the heck? Um, so I think part of this is, is the question that people ask where it's, how do I break into games? And they hope to then, like, touch the process and, and be able to follow the path, um, which, seeing as my path involved getting drunk at a, at a cricket match, um, it's not necessarily you know something that you can replicate straight away uh particularly not in the states where you know you don't play the the uh, gentleman's game um <laughs> but uh so i think really it's, it's all about being prepared uh for when the luck strikes because i think as you were saying rob you you sort of met people and, and so forth but you put yourself in the right place to be noticed and you had the right skills at that stage where you were noticed to then have it move forward so um i took a law degree and then didn't do the law degree because I spent four years basically doing theatre instead. Um, uh, panicking my parents who thought I was going to leave the law and become a, a writer, only to then like announce, no, I'm going to leave the, the law to become a writer um, uh, with no clue how to get there. Um, took an MA in television and script writing. Um, I would recommend doing courses to people. Um, you'll learn how to avoid a lot of the starting mistakes. Uh, any course you do, is is not a law it's a set of guidelines so please don't think that you have to 
follow all of the words that are in uh, um, any of the books that you pick up or any of the courses that you do. They're there to give you a toolkit to, to follow. But following that starts to produce some work when you're doing a course or and you don't have to necessarily pay to do a course. You can, you know, you can do some of the ones that are online, but start to produce some of your own writing so that when you end up at a cricket match after a few beers and somebody says, Oh yeah, I make video games. It's like, cool, I love games. I've, you know, I've been playing games since the BBC computer came out, uh, and stuff. And, and then the person on the other side of the bar goes, Oh, well, you know, we're looking for a writer. What do you do? And it's like, you'll never guess, uh, what I do. Um, that you can then have not a blank piece of paper and just a desire, but something that indicates already that you're somebody that they can trust or talk to about that opportunity. So, um, for me, it was about, having those bits and pieces in the right place. Um, and then at, at all stages in career, when it's suddenly like it feels like the career has stopped or it feels like you don't know where to go next, um, restarting that process. So going to go do, do some more courses, um, writing and remembering why you love it so that when you're in interview and when you're talking to people, you can really share that love and enthusiasm and understanding of what it is you're doing. Um, so that when the look look that comes along at a randomly at a cricket match or look that you've worked to do by attending all of those events to, to create connections when, when those opportunities open up, you're ready for them. Yeah. It's so, I just want to uh, echo that. Uh, that's such an amazing story and you know, it is, it's all opportunity meets preparation. Like if you hadn't been down the journey of writing, if you didn't have, samples if you hadn't honed your craft um when fate places something in your path that you might love to do um and you're you're not prepared for it they're gonna look at you like well there's no reason i'd actually take you seriously um it's also really funny because my backup plan uh according to my grandmother uh and my parents (laughs) was to go to law school and i was like nope Uh, and I was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to try the writing thing first. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, has your law degree been useful at all with your writing? Uh, oh, wow. Um, absolutely not. Um, uh, I think, well, I, I say that that's, a, that's not, that's not true. Um, I think, uh, I think you, you should, as a writer, every experience you have rolled into the things that you do and, um, whilst I don't write essays anymore, again, the discipline of, of suddenly realizing you've got a deadline that you've ignored because you've been in the theater all the time and you've got to hit that deadline and here's X number of, you know, thousand words have got to be in. That definitely, I think, helped me in those early stages. Um, but I think, you know, I was lucky enough to be at the time when, when this country believed in education without getting into, into politics. But, uh, so, you know, I was able to go to university without the debt that's associated with it now. So I think, some of those opportunities are different for people that are coming through to really be able to find yourself. And that's what those four years were about. I was very lucky to be supported through four years of working out what I wanted to do. So while the law degree has only tangential links with with um, writing discipline and so forth, the four years at university where I got to practice theatre, learn about who I am and who I, uh, and who I wanted to be were vastly important. And I don't think that generations coming through now get as much of an opportunity there and i i think that's a a a travesty and a tragedy and we need to to look within writing communities and within society for how we give people the space for finding their skills in in any in any field 
Um, so yeah, I think uh, again, it, it's very easy for me in privileged position of been been around then to say, hey, do this. Um, so I think just trying to find that space to discover who you are, uh, and then allowing the writing to to flow to flow through that was the was the main thing out of there. That's a short answer. Ramble, ramble. That's why I need. That's what writers need editors. No, it's a great answer. Um, we'll get to the guild questions in a bit, but I want to ask some process questions first. And I was curious, how did both of you find your voices as writers? And what are some steps to produce your own if you're having a hard time finding it? Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, there's definitely it's it's constantly a process of finding and refining what my voice is. Um, uh, I think that kind of my inspirations, the reason I got into writing in general um, are sort of the uh, 90s closeted kid trifecta of uh, superheroines. Uh, I'm a big fan of Sailor Moon, Xena Warrior Princess, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, so uh, those three shows uh, for me all have, I'll actually do have a lot in common. It was stuff that I was borrowing in my writing, which is um, a very queer theme of stories about found families, action, heart, humor, um, and just kind of unexpected tonal blends. Um, and what I found earlier in my career was that uh, stuff that I was writing that did center a female lead was where my voice was singing. And so I kept doing that until probably about seven or so years ago after I left uh, iZombie on the CW um, to go try and start selling my own work was that people were looking at me, uh, this gay guy, uh, of like, why are you trying to sell us this story about a woman? No one ever said it out loud. Um, but I kind of had to go back and rethink and started thinking, oh, people are saying maybe the market is finally ready for you to write stories about that center queer people, but in your weird heightened, you know, genre, sci-fi, fantasy, um, horror, uh, worlds, um, as long as the character is grounded and it's emotional. Um, and so I really taken that forward as, you know, I don't know that as writers, we need quote a brand, but it does seem increasingly that people ask you about it. You know, when you're at job interviews, particularly on TV and film. Um, and so I've kind of definitely narrowed into this world where my original writing centers around queer characters and stories that are not about them being queer in these very, hide in spaces that we haven't really seen a ton of queer centric narratives before. Um, and so I always go back to that of like, what's that foundational thing that I'm trying to write that's not out there in the world yet. Um, and sort of back to uh, what's the thing that I, as a 10 year old would have loved to either see on TV or in film or played as a game um, that still doesn't exist. You know, and how can I fulfill that inner child? I love it. What about you, Andrew? I'm, I'm still processing uh, what Rob was saying. It was great. I, had the, the pro- <laughs> I keep forgetting I'm here to talk and not, not listen. That was that was great. I, I, I loved you exploring that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think there were a number of key things that you you you, you touched on there um, about um, self uh, and market. I wanted to say versus market, but I shouldn't make it a conflict because. Um, 
I think we I think many writers start off with with a voice that is as you said that that comes from love of existing works. So, you know, I came very much from a background of um Radio 4 comedies and Hitchhiker's Guide and um Terry Pratchett and and comedies like that. So the the theater I started writing although um it wasn't really fantasy. There were, I wrote one fantasy play. The theatre I started writing was was about a love of people and wanting to explore them with a warmth and a heart, and to look at topics through that, and and um, to make sure that meaning is delivered through entertainment. Um, so I, I, I and I've been going back to and I wanna, it's, it's interesting you saying that because I've been going back to work out what is my voice because I want to start writing some of my own things because the majority of my career has been about emulating other people's voices or finding a space within an existing franchise or finding a voice that fits a new franchise. So rather than my own voice necessarily, it's been about um, channeling other people. Um, so um, I want a, a favourite review of mine. Uh, I worked on some of the Harry Potters before we found certain things out, but let's not go into that right now. Um, but uh, one review that was written that I I, I I, sh- I should print out and pin up somewhere. Actually, said uh, the writer has no understanding of of the of the author at all. The voice doesn't sound anything like the author. You know, has this writer even read the books? And then the lines that they quoted as being terrible were all the author's lines, and the lines that they they quoted as as really singing the characters were all mine. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I think that that a lot of the jobs I've had to do has been about being invisible in a way so that the, 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 the world shines through rather than my voice. And I think that's one challenge in a lot of, for want of a better word, commercial writing that you are about putting on that mask and, and creating that world for people rather than, than, than it being centered around your own voice. And then when it comes back to your own voice, I think it's really important to go back and find what those anchors are and the things that motivated you so that you don't lose your meaning in yourself by putting on all of those masks repeatedly, that you don't come out of that process without your own voice, without your own meaning. Um, so it was great for you to be talking there, Rob, about the things that anchor your experience and, and where you want to go, because the marketplace uh, will always be demanding that you are something or someone to fit what they want. Um, so you need to always be asking who you are and what you want in, in amongst that. Sorry for laughing in the middle of that. I just like, uh, of course, of course, that's the, that's what the reviewer like. It, I, yeah, it's don't, hilarious. Don't apologize for laughing a bit. That was supposed to be funny. It's- I mean, it, it, it's it's tragicomic. But if I, said, um, if I said my dog had died and he laughed, then I would have been upset. Unless, unless yeah. it had fallen into a plate of custard or something, and then you know that 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 edge would have worked. It's so interesting what Andrew is saying, though, because when you're doing a work for hire, um, whether you're on a team or you know you're a solo writer on something that you've been hired onto, yes, they're, 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 the the material that they read or the the credits on your CV sheet that they read um, to get you in the door are, are one thing, but like at the end of the day, like no writer, every writer is chasing the word no notes and it's never going to come. So there's always, there's always people who are going to have an opinion. We all know people in opinions. Um, uh, and whether they're right or wrong, sometimes they're the one who are a controlling the purse strings or B, you know, controlling whether, you know, the quality of your life, um, and how much extra rewriting and work you have to do. And when it's a work for hire, you know, you try and retain 
those things that they brought you in for, those things that are your voice and your passions and your meaning. But everything's a collaborative process. And um, in this commercial world, you know, sometimes you kind of just have to bite the bullet and, you know, do some rewrites that you don't necessarily fully agree with um, because that's just what the job demands. And hopefully you managed, hopefully managed to find a happy medium where you like, you can get yourself right with the notes. And sometimes you just have to detach yourself and throw your hands up and be like, okay, this isn't my best work ever, but in a 20 hour game, um, you know, if there's, you know, a one minute thing that I'm not the most proud of, uh, so be it. Yeah, you're all, you're always going to have to move on. I I live in fear of well, there's certain projects where I haven't, but I generally live in fear of no notes as as a, as a note. Uh, there are definitely projects where <laughs> um, I've prayed that that's what would come back because um, the notes weren't always informative. But um, uh, no notes for me is is uh, is either indifference or that paranoia as a writer like there's got to be a way to make it better so mm-hmm. if, there are, if there are no notes then then what have, what have, what have we missed what have we missed what um but yeah there's always a point that you 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 have to let it go because of the deadlines or just your sanity um uh but nothing is ever finished ever ever i think there's also another option where like, for no notes where like when you're sending something off to multiple stakeholders where it goes back and they say no notes you're like and then you're thinking to yourself Someone didn't see this as they come back and bite me in the ass later, where they're going to come back way too late and make me to change something. Yeah, or, or are they going to fire me next week? Is that why there are no notes? What, what's going on? What's, what's going on? <laughs> and then there, yeah, there's definitely times uh, where it's like, uh, it, particularly on things where you're part of a team and you're like, are you sure there are no notes? Because there should be notes. Like, wh- why aren't you giving the notes? Yeah, this needs work. Giant penguin in. It's yeah. like just to see if anybody noticed the giant penguin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was initially getting angry at Rob's thing about like writers shouldn't worry; they should never expect to get no notes because they'll always get notes. I'm like, well, fuck you, Rob. I'm gonna write like get no notes. But then I realized like, no, if I got no notes, I'd be like, someone did didn't do their job right because they should be giving me notes because I'm not that great and <laughs> my insecurity would take over. There's that imposter syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the constant companion of a writer is like the imposter syndrome and insecurity. They're always sitting there. Yeah. You're going to be, you're, I'm always going to be better than the writer next to me, but never <laughs> <for> myself. <laughs> um, and then another uh, process question. Have either of you ever gotten the note that a, speaking of notes, have either of you ever gotten the note that a character isn't likable enough? And if so, how did you deal with it? I think it I think with any notes it's trying to get at what the heart of the the note is. There are definitely um points where um I've written characters and they weren't likable enough. Um but it's but likable likable is is a word that really needs to be interrogated because when I mean, what does it mean? Um and generally I think it it means that um something hasn't been communicated properly within the process. So some characters should be unlikable. Uh, if all the characters were likable, you'd be in trouble. Um, so I think likable quite often means interesting, or it means that there is a, another agenda there where it's like, what we really want is for you to produce a character that's exactly the same as this other character in another game. And when, when that's the aim, and they're saying it's not likable or it's not whatever, and they're trying to push you into another action hero with the same gravelly voice, 
Um, I think that's a uh, something where you need to then talk the process through. Or likable involves like the female character wearing fewer clothes. Uh, <laughs> that needs to be like talked through because uh, likable is often a cloak for other thoughts. But when it's a when it's a positive note that you really need to be taking uh, paying attention to, it often means that you're not. Somewhere within your writing or within the process, either people haven't read something or you've not put it into scenes enough, that the character's not engaged uh, enough. So I don't think characters have to always be likable, but I think they always need to be engaging. Um, And I think that's often a a confusion of words. Yeah, I I, want to echo that because I I think that uh, the the likable character note is definitely a thing uh, that is or was omnipresent in TV, and I think TV has matured a little bit. But uh, I, I think you do have to scratch under the surface for like the note behind the note of is the character engaging, as Andrew says, is are they compelling? Do I want as long as someone wants to spend spend more time with them because there's something about them that is and their story that is interesting and propulsive like the likability factor i think has sort of fallen out a little bit i I do remember there's this i'm gonna i'm gonna butcher it but there's this sort of famous tv pilot story from like 10 15 years ago and i want to say it was i want to say it was a greg berlanti pilot and he got the note your character's not likable enough, and his rewrite was in the character description. He literally wrote, comma, likable. <laughs> and the note, it didn't get the note again. And it's just, it, it, it's, um, you know, what, what is likability? I would rather have someone that is, you know, complex and flawed. And I like them because of those nuances and complexities, oh God, Uh, (laughs) you know, as opposed to, I feel like the traditional definition of likable is like, you know, do I want to have a beer with them and, you know, hang out all the time? Uh, No, like this is, this is a narrative engine. Like they're, they're part of a story. Yeah, it's like I, th- I think I think it's trying to think that's a good. Uh, would you sit down and have a beer with them, or sit down and have dinner with them? And it's like many of the great characters, you really wouldn't, <laughs> or you wouldn't invite them again. Um, you know, Sherlock Holmes is a really compelling character, but would you really want to sit down at dinner and have him like break down your entire life and criticize you for the entire dinner and all of your guests? Um, no. Uh, so um, I think I think looking for a, uh, those flaws and and the elements in. Um, is interesting, and also I think uh, one of the differences between real people and, and characters often is is you get to see all of their flaws and they play out in front of you, whereas people often are trying to uh, trying to mask them. Um, so I, I no, I've gone off down the side road now, but I think yeah, finding those those layers of of, of interest um, rather than just likable, because like likable actually just sounds dull. I mean, would you want to be described as likable? It's it's sort of like, you know, if somebody writes your, your dating profile and, and they put the word nice down, it's just damning. Uh, it's like uh, the, the there's elements of that you want to be likable. You want, you want the things to go through, but you want to be engaged with more active words like uh, funny or or, uh, or uh, sort of engaging or intellectual or all of the, any words like that that I've never used to describe me. But uh, but those words, you know, those are the words that you want to be around yourself or around characters, not likable, which is, is sort of like a, beige paint 
I would love to get the note sometime of this character isn't intellectual enough. <laughs> oh god, yeah. <laughs> I think you know this kind of touches on you know how to deal how to deal with notes um, as well, uh, more general notes, not just uh, a character likability thing. Uh, a mentor of mine, uh, when going through notes that he was receiving either from studios, networks, etc., um, would always ask the question like what are you not feeling because it a lot of people when they're giving notes some of them are just giving notes to have have said something and justified their paycheck Mm -hmm. um but a lot of them like they're not sure really what what's bothering them and so like interrogating them a little bit if you have the opportunity to discuss notes as opposed to just receiving you know, sentences over an email, you know, to, to dig in a little bit on the, on the emotional front, like what in this moment made you say this character is not likable? Um, what weren't you feeling about them? What stopped you in your tracks as you were reading and made you give me that note? And I think it's just, it, it's a, it's a, it was a, it's a really interesting technique for digging underneath the surface, um, because a lot of people aren't really conscious of why they're giving of why their thoughts are generated. And it is kind of our jobs to find that intention and try to find solutions. Um, I never want to take someone's solution also when I get notes. Like if, if you're saying they're not likable, have them eat vanilla ice cream again, like the most milk toast thing. Like th- that's, that's not the solution to whatever problem you were having with this character, but something made you stop and give me a note and that I need to pay attention to. Yeah. I think, I think I, I, I agree with that. And, and the, the one sort of refinement I would say is, is within, within games is modifying the language that you used to express that depending upon the individual and the department, because Feelings is a difficult word sometimes to communicate or can undermine, sadly, it shouldn't, but it can undermine the point that you're making because it's one of those words that certain uh, people run away from. (laughs) Um, So I think just trying to find the way of exploring exactly what you're saying, but with other, other sort of terms um, or trying to get to, to the, to the bottom of whether the issue is something that's holding them up with their skill base. So, you know, in terms of design, have you created a character where the, 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 their approach to things is getting in the way of what the designer needs them to do within the scene or do within that moment in the game? So are you writing contrary to the aims of what the design team wants? And then how do you resolve that conflict? And uh, similarly for the art team, have you created something which for them is is uh, is feeling uh, stereotypical rather than, uh, um, you know, you, you might have had a bright idea about something Um but the the art team have taken taken it as as literal uh, and and therefore think that you want to, a character design in a particular way, or they haven't quite grasped what it is that you want. So therefore, there's a language disparity between between you and the other the other groups. And so, I think yeah, constantly with each with each department finding the right language to speak with them to find out what the problem is with the with the notes, what at the heart of the notes. I love all of this discussion. I want to talk about more, but <laughs> I want to get to guild craziness first yes we'd like to talk about guilds and unions rob is currently a wga member as a screenwriter and andrew is a member of the writers guild of great britain as a game writer and for those who don't know as well 
uh, the guild in the UK does represent writers in the games industry. In the WJ in America, I would describe the WJ's attitude to games running is probably more indifference, and there is no games caucus as of last year anymore. And I don't even know if there is, there was a way for you to become a full guild member through game running that they did not publicize. But I don't even know. If, I I don't know if they've completely cut that out or not. Um, but Andrew specifically first, why did you want to join the Writers Guild over there? Oh, well, I I joined um, years back because um, my writing career sort of took me through theatre into television. I was in television for a number of years and as my main um, income before I moved over to, into games as my main income. I mean, I was working on, on games and, and, and TV concurrently for quite a while. Um, but um, I hit a point where I I joined because I, I thought it was a thing to do. Um, and it was a fortunate that I did because I then ran into a uh, an issue of a payment with a company um, uh, in, t- where in TV. Um and after speaking to the guild, managed to get not only myself but the rest of the team paid within twenty four hours, um, just by getting the sort of the guild involved and, and and getting their advice. So after that moment, it 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 changed my relationship with the guild from one that was sort of passive or a sort of feeling of obligation or moral, moral right that you know we should be together as a as a group to to actually wanting to understand more about this group and how they'd helped me and how I could then help other writers. And that coincided with me moving to London, which did make it easier. Um, attended one of the annual general meetings, got chatting to someone um, who then wrote me onto the children's committee that was existing at the time um, because I was doing a lot of children's TV and, and, and theatre writing. Then that, that person then promptly uh, um, had to resign as the chair of that committee after my first meeting, and I found myself as the chair of the children's committee um, shortly after. So I, I ran that for a while until just industry-wide it didn't feel like that was one committee represented it well. It should be sort of a, a an interest within other things. And But during that time had, had looked at video games um, as a – a writer working within them and realizing that they weren't being represented and that they weren't uh, being covered. So I worked then with the guild to put together the Writers Guild of Great Britain video game guidelines. And this is, I'm going to say getting on for about 15 years ago now. Um, and we then formed the video games committee uh, sort of pretty much straight after that. So we've been representing video games writers for uh, getting on for 15 years. I'm going to get the numbers slightly wrong. Um, and we've we've since then gradually increased the way that we're able to represent and support writers from um, both getting information out there in the form of the the Writers Guild guidelines, uh, which describe those are based on a survey and they they give sort of um, potential pay rates um, based uh, upon worldwide surveys. They they talk about the conditions that you should be looking at and the sort of things that you should be making sure you're in your contract. Um, uh, to being able to support uh, writers with advice uh, on a day-to-day basis, and then we also, um, uh, as a as a team, because as a this committee and then as the the guild staff, uh, we also provide a lot of uh, events, both online and in person. That sounds like a lot of stuff, and it all <laughs> sounds great. Rob, can you tell our listeners what does the Writers Guild of America do for game writers? At least Writers Guild of America West. Uh, well, the uh... 
the short answer is fuck all. Uh, <laughs> um, I, but before we delve into that, I'm just kind of like, I, I, I kind of want to pick Andrew's uh, brain a little bit about like how how that how that came to be because um again the writers guild of america really doesn't touch video games with a 20-foot pole there was uh, i encountered this on or attempted to encounter this on indivisible there used to be uh perhaps still is um this three-page tiny little contract called the ipc i believe it's the interactive program contract that basically was like a three clause version of the general writers guild of America minimum basic agreement um, that an individual game writer could take to a prospective employer, prospective developer and say, Hey, I'm a WGA member. I would like this game to be WGA covered. And here's what it entails. Um, and the things that it entailed, um, uh, you, you know, certainly for the indie game that I tried to take it to were insurmountable obstacles, uh, to be frank, where one, every writer on the game was required to be WGA, which I later found out, um, even though that clause was in there in a legal document, um, was not the, like you could get waivers somehow. Two, it meant that uh, about 20% of your pay, your take-home, would go into the Writers Guild Pension and Health Fund, which if you are already a WGA member like myself, great. It's a contribution to help keep you on your health care, your very good union health care. But if you're not already a member and you're not doing enough work to get membership, which is, again, like... I don't think anyone knew that you, if you took this contract to a video game company and the game company magically said, yes, we'll sign it, um, that you could become a guild member. Um, but uh, in TV and film, that uh, pension and health contribution is on top of your salary. It's not um, something taken away from your paycheck. It's something that the company has agreed to contribute. Uh, so it, was it was just kind of odd um and the third thing was literally like oh yeah if you sign this document then you're eligible for a writers guild of america video game award uh, a category that no longer exists so um that was kind of the 2010s uh as my understanding as far as the wga's involvement in video games um and yeah they've really taken us taken a step back um and I have lots of thoughts and opinions about that, but I really do. Uh, well, I started this whole diatribe saying I wanted to ask Andrew questions <laughs> about how the Writers Guild of Great Britain did it, because, uh, you know, it feels like, you know, approaching a Blizzard Activision, a Sony Interactive, you know, from an individual perspective, uh, very intimidating. And that's why unions exist. Uh, but the WGA is not doing that. Um, so I'm very curious how the WGGB, uh, did it and how it sort of, um, delineated the different kinds of writer's work into its guidelines and contract because game work is so different from an indie to a AAA. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's an important, um, so place to start is, is the, 
industry in each country is 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 different um so there are always going to be ways that different places need to unionize in in a with a different approach um i do think it is uh unfortunate that the um wga is is sort of moved away from video games industry at a point when the video games industry has become much more interested uh in in unionizing um and it do, it does seem like uh, the timing uh needed to be considered but um within the the wggb and, and we also have the the video games award that, that continues over here um we, we have that as, as one of the categories and uh, when 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 the when the discussion started, there were some that were prepared and still would. I know, I still know if I, I met certain theatre writers and or or TV writers and film writers, they will be uh, bombastic uh, about it and uh, and very vocal in in sort of sneering at uh, the idea of the industry as being proper writing or any form of writing. Sadly, that that type of uh, ignorance still exists. Um, uh, and I had to deal with that as a children's writer because there are still people that sort of make snide repar- remarks about writing for a, a, a children's audience, as you're going to find it for, for many mediums. Like, you, you know, you, you, you write romance, you write... So I think starting out by finding those within the organisation that understand and respect the fact that other media can exist, should exist, and should be explored. So um, even if they don't understand the medium... That they understand that there is a, uh, they have a basic respect for other other writers, so that you start to build those alliances, so that you're not a lone voice uh, in things. Um, I think approaching with concrete ideas. So, um, when looking at the video games committee in the UK, it wasn't just forming a committee; it was forming it with certain key things that we could action straight away and deliver. Um, so it wasn't just a we want to do this or we want to radically transform the industry overnight which whilst we wanted to do that um it <laughs> wasn't achievable um so the guidelines were a con- were a sort of a concrete thing um which also meant that we were bringing on board knowledge and expertise from from others um so when we were able to deliver that we were able to show to both the guild uh to other members of of the the guild um and to the industry that we 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 could pull this together and create something that was meaningful so I think starting out with some clear aims um, that are deliverable so that once you can reach those points, it's then harder for um, other people to to see this as a side venture or a amateur or ill-thought-out proposal, proposal uh, um, as, as things progress. So I think that that was a good starting point for us. And and also trying to be in, in it for the long, long term so that I think the... The Writers Guild of Great Britain understood at the time we started, there were very few writers working in that industry full time, and the industry's changed phenomenally. Uh, I mean, we, we, I, I met up with somebody the other day at a pub, and um, I realised it was a pub where we used to have gatherings, and the gatherings used to be four of us, then maybe six or seven of us, and now when we hold, hold one of the, the socials, which we are hoping to get uh, back into now, um, should the pandemic. Um, uh, not see a whole lot of infections coming again, um, um, but in safer times, when when we were holding some of the later um, networking events, we were seeing sort of sixty, seventy people turning up, and that was only because that was the limit of the number of people we could get into the room. We could easily have filled it with, you know, over a hundred people. So the 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 guild understood that the 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 industry was going was was going that way, and was prepared to work. Um, 
with writers as the industry was evolving? Sorry, that was a long answer. It's so interesting because um, one of the issues, uh, I mean, TV and film writers, which is predominantly what the WGA West uh, represents uh, or, or its membership, um, are certainly, you know, going through some interesting times with, uh, you know, those media um, as far as technology disruptions and stuff. And so they're not the voting membership is really focused on like, hey, how do I protect myself? <laughs> not how do I um, expand union membership and the definition of who a WGA West member writer is. Um, how do I protect other writers and also open up a new avenue for myself uh, to explore my craft in this related medium? Um, you know, uh, so right now, I think a few years ago, I unsuccessfully ran uh, to for the board of directors. And among the planks of my, quote, platform was that I wanted um, to push the WGA West to make more of a focus on video game writer unionization. Um, and uh Obviously, I used the word unsuccessful. I was not elected to the board of directors. Um, so, uh, so was not able to pursue it in that official capacity. Um, have, I've continued to stay in touch with the wonderful staffers and, uh, lawyers at the WGA West who have been interested in figuring out a way to do this, but it's when, when the membership isn't insisting on it. It's hard to get a ton of stuff accomplished. I think that uh, Andrew mentioned, you know, the the video game industry does seem to be more interested in unionization now. And I think that's wonderful because I think everybody should join a union because um, there are so many benefits and protections that come with it. Um, and so the latest that I had heard from the staffers at the WGA West was that because uh, a union called the CWA, the Communication Workers of America, uh, is making an active push into unionizing the video game industry in general, that the WGA um, is going to let them try and do that. Um, as opposed to unions can be a little like everybody on the outside, you know, um, you know, tries to be very friendly. But I think unions can be a little you know, at loggerheads and competitive, um, because once once the video game industry is unionized, and uh, again, hopefully it will for the workers' sake, under the CWA, and if that includes writers, it becomes very hard for the WGA to suddenly take up an interest in video game writing and specifically protecting the interests specifically of writers. And there's an analog to this. Um, in the TV and film industry, which is animation. Um, if you have been on, if you were on Twitter earlier this year, um, there were certainly some pushes from what's called the Animation Guild, um, which uh, since I believe the 1950s has represented all workers, pretty much all workers in animation, including writers. And the writers who are part of TAG were making this big stink essentially of, Hey, we do the same work as live action writers in TV and film for the same, you know, uh, run times, 
the same number of pages, uh, and we are paid so much less than a WGA contract. And there's two ways to look at it is one, they're not in the WGA or some of them are, are members of both. But if it's not a WGA coverage show, then of course, no, that the studio is literally saying we don't want to pay a WGA level contract. But two, I think in part that it's because TAG is not specifically looking out for writers that the terms of their contracts for writers are weaker. And so my worry going forward, and again, I, I do think that unionization overall is an incredibly positive thing. There's so much power in a collective and in solidarity with other people who share your passions for your crafts. And um, yeah, but I do worry that if the entire video game industry does get unionized under the CWA, as positive as that may be, that specific writer issues will not be addressed in the way that a specific writer's union might be able to address them. Yeah, I, th I think um, that there are many different disciplines within, and I, the, the, the same can be said of, of, of television and, and the way that the different skill bases are separated across different unions, that it, it is useful to have a union that really understands the needs of, of a writer or a, or a director or, or um, uh, your, the particular skill base that you're working with. Because when having negotiations and discussions, it, it, it changes the timbre and you know the questions to ask, you know the type of um, things that the person is going through, and you also know the, the individuals you can speak to to get a, a better insight into how the industry is working. I think one of the things that you touched on there is – um looking at the history of unions is whilst they are lord large organizations and they're about the power of the many um which is one reason to to join a union you know your your little voice versus all of the raised voices together the history of some of the moments of change or indeed the formation of of, of unions has been about individuals and i think um it it sometimes takes a group getting together to then sort of demonstrate to the union or to form a, a, a movement forward to, to, to bring that change and for the union to understand that that's how television got brought into, you know, on top of film. That's how film got taken seriously when theatre was looking at it as a, as a junior partner and, you know, these people with moving images would never last. Um, the, the, the industry has gone through this before. The medium is all like, accepting of the media has, been, has, has constantly had to have these battles. And so looking at the, looking at the history and understanding how the union has come to be, um, and came to be, I think is a, is, is useful for knowing how it's going to exist in the future. But sort of taking that discussion forward in a positive way with some thoughts about how it could work, because I, I, the, the writers, the, the Guild of Great Britain understands that the, you can't negotiate a theatre contract in quite the same way that you can negotiate a film contract in the same way that you negotiate a TV contract in the same way because the industries are varied. And um, so they approach each of them with bespoke answers. And it's so that because they're already doing that with those different me um, those, th those different industries already, they, they came to video games with that approach, which is understanding that, okay, we need to see what the conditions are how it's working and how we can um, help improve things within the industry rather than how do we impose an existing model upon it. Um, so I think starting out by 
asking questions and working with writers who are in the industry to understand what's likely to work uh, and where conditions are starting from so then how they can be improved rather than taking a model from other industry and saying, wallop, work with this because you'd be wearing the wrong size of pyjamas. They just won't fit. Andrew, I don't know. I apologize if you already had said this before. I might have blanked out, but can a video game writer in the, the Great Britain in the UK join the Writers Guild of Great Britain? Yes, uh, they can join as a full member, yes. What, what are the requirements for that? They need to uh, demonstrate um, a certain amount of paid work um, and uh, and then they'll be reviewed by the committee uh, that oversees that, that particular medium. So it's TV or radio or, or animation or uh, video games, however you're applying. Um to see if they if they are if they meet the eligibility set of criteria, so it's it's really about showing that you have done sort of paid work within the industry. If you haven't, you can still join. So you can join as a candidate member. Um, we also have a student membership, um, so you can join at different levels and then progress through as you um, uh, as your experience builds, um, as you get more paid work uh, come through. And each of those levels gives you different uh, access to different parts of the way that the guild works. Um, so full members get uh, certain benefits and, ro- and, vo- and voting rights, um, um, which you, you wouldn't get to say as a student member. Uh, but as a student member, you will be able to get advice and access events and, and so forth. So there's a, there's a, 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 there are ways in, uh, into the guild at different levels. And that paid work, is that through a specific guild contract or... Can it be with no guild contract? Um, well, we we have a different system in the UK because uh, we don't have the the the, the closed shop um, uh, sort of model in the UK. Uh, so there, there's a different way that 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 things would be looked at with that. So it would be paid work, and then um, uh, rather than it being on a specific contract with it within the UK. Sounds great. Yeah, uh, you don't have to. The, the, your credits don't have to be from the UK either. So if you if you end up moving to uh, to Britain to work, um, but you're bringing experience from elsewhere and so forth, obviously that that type of experience will be borne in mind. Hmm. Do companies? So I guess then you don't have a thing with companies need need to be guild signatories over there. Uh, no, no. Yeah, that's truly wild. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because the the that three page contract that I mentioned before the IPC, I mean that was very much um, again like theoretically the requirements are the same. Um, you need to show a certain amount of paid professional work in the industry, and then you can become a WGA West member. Uh, I believe that number right uh, around now is about forty one thousand dollars, but. You have to fight the company to get this contract done in America, uh, if you even know the contract exists. So it's it's uh, really unshocking that uh, so few people utilize the tool. Yeah, at here. the at the caucus meetings we were at, I would say of the people the people Nick and I know in the games industry, like the writers we know personally who tried to use that contract, they were never ever signed. But the only times I've heard that it did work was. Let's say members in the caucus who predominantly came from film were able would tell us about well yeah, they wanted to get their contract signed on these film adaptation games or whatever. Just people who had 
more clout and weren't who you get the sense like they're slumming it in games just as like as a side gig um it had more leverage i've definitely encountered that from certain writers and their approach to video games but as a as a union that can't be an approach um because uh all individuals need to be treated um uh, uh, as the starting point rather than as uh um a unit i would say um but the i think when when looking at industries and the approach i think that's a a, a fundamental question that at the wggb that we we ask is when tackling a new industry how how uh, to to into to in terms of unionization is like how do we how do we approach it and and one of the things is the conversations with companies so it would be easy to be combative from the from the start about how are we approach but that's not necessarily a way that then um encourages companies to start a conversation and conversation is important dialogue between both sides is, is important so that while the guild uh, has been involved on on the um well i suppose you can look at guild membership in a way as, as an insurance policy so if things go wrong then you cash the insurance in and then the guild can come in and deal with issues of redundancy and so forth so the guild's definitely been involved on that side and and dealing with companies that have treated people badly so look seeking to protect members when when um employment law has been broken and so forth so the guild definitely does that but another thing that the guild offers and and companies I hope understand and and we've dealt with companies like this in the past and we encourage more companies to do this is we are there to talk to companies about good practice so rather than it being the insurance policy that deals with like resolving problems at the point of crisis that actually coming and talking to the guild and and there being a dialogue between the guild and the industry at at at, at this uh, at an earlier point where those problems can be avoided so it's like you know here are some guidelines which set out good practice for both sides of the uh, of the industry from what a writer should be doing to what the industry should be offering and therefore if you're looking at these guidelines you're you're starting um positive points of employment and you're avoiding some of those issues that might come down down the line later on um how should we be handling some of these issues with employment so we we've got that information there to help employers um be better at the way at the way that they're working with people to avoid those problems arriving in the first place. So I think making sure that the industry understands for 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 the WGGB, it's important for the for companies to understand that we are there to help them with advice to avoid problems arising in the first place, so that we we don't have to then see them further down the line as the as the people who are sort of saying you know the, this is these are the rights of the people that you treated contrary to employment law, etc. Just like stunned. Like the past half hours listening, all this like they figured it out. Like, how did the how is WJ never? Well, I think that you know, for for better or worse, uh, probably for worse, who knows? Uh, in this specific interest instance, um, uh, it, it sounds as though the WGGB figured out a way to involve the companies more on a partnership level, um, and I think that. At least within Hollywood, the WGA West, like we have a reputation with the TV and film companies, and many of those are the same corporate umbrellas that control a lot of the major video game studios. Um, I, it is certainly we we are a uh, rowdy, contentious bunch that 
seem to be the only ones in town every three years who might threaten to go on strike over very important pay equity issues. Um, and actually get shit done, like with the agents stuff. Yeah. Yeah, like when when the Writers Guild of America West comes together on an issue where writers are being treated like crap, we can move mountains. But uh, you know, yeah, reputationally, you know, for for entrenched interests like massive global multinational corporations, um, uh, that can be seen a little adversarial. And maybe you just don't want to start that conversation Um, uh, because that's going to affect your wallet going forward. But uh, yeah, I mean, again, I think that it it comes down to the unfortunate thing of like the WJ West membership is really focused right now on some really uh, pernicious, uh, pernicious rather. Uh, I can speak words. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, stuff happening in TV and film um, that they're just not paying attention. And unfortunately, the effect of that is any efforts to for the WJ West to get into video game unionization is kind of under this cloud of like, oh, well, we have the best writers. And so we're going to come into your industry and do better work. Where it really is more about, um, hey, Video game writers right now are fantastic writers and doing great work, and they should be WGA members. Mm-hmm. There, there was a, I think it was the first, but I, I, it could have been the second. I think it was the first uh, Writers Guild of Great Britain Video Game Award, and the the host, when announcing the video game award, made a crack about you know video games. <laughs> Who knew there was writing in that? And the room laughed. Um, but it was a great opening because <laughs> I was actually following up to introduce the award. So it was a point that I could actually make a sort of say the, the sort of Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers thing about, you know, she did it backwards um, is like, we all know how hard it is to write half an hour of television, half an hour of, of radio. We know the, the, the blood and sweat that it takes to produce sort of uh, a three hour play uh, or, a, or a two hour film. Now imagine a 40-hour experience which branches and can take you off in different ways and you never know where the audience are going to be. So, yes, there is not only writing in games, but we do it dancing backwards. And I think (laughs) being able to have a platform to say things like that, which resonated in the room and a number of people then came up afterwards and, and talked about it. And it's not one moment and it's not just my voice that's one example of a lot of other people who've done it within the guild as, as staff and as, as committee members and people who've gone out to their own um, committees to have that conversation uh, and say, look, you know, if, if you want to work in the industry, you've got to understand the industry. If, if you, you've got to respect other media, you know, it's, and, and I think there has been a sea change um, gradually, but it's it's finding enough people to to give you a platform to to do that together, uh, so that you aren't just the one the one voice, uh, and to be able to point at some of those things. And I think one of the things that you kept mentioning there is, if people are people think with their pockets, uh, and if if there is a serious sort of move from certain WGA members to want to to write in games and to understand it, um, 
and for the WGA to be able to support them in that area because that's what a union wants to do. And I, and I, I don't doubt that there are, there are many people within the WGA who really want to do this and want to understand it. But that's going to take that knowledge to be able to, to really assist those people to make that change into that industry and to do it well and to actually be able to make a, a living out of it. So in terms of if they are thinking about it from their pocket, um, they're going to need the support to be able to do it. And one of the reasons that they often foray into it and foray out is they aren't given the structure to be able to do it. So again, one of the things that we try and do within the Guild is to offer the online events that we've did through lockdowns. We had a couple of festivals and we've done some uh, online uh, videos, which you can still find on YouTube. Um, We'll hopefully get back to doing some more of those shortly and also to doing the in-person events so that we're providing that craft and industry knowledge to allow people to move between different media and we do we do that for so for games writers again we're there to support them if they then get a tv contract if they want to work in comics if they want to work in they can get that sort of holistic advice uh which will allow them to 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 expand their um writing across different industries this is this is great uh to prep for this i was i had read a book uh called the writers by miranda banks recently which is about the history of the wga and uh i did not expect this but it does actually talk about the right the video game writing briefly a couple of times and when was this book written this is written i think in the last 10 years so it was, it was fairly recent but this is topical to our discussion but i took out some quotes from it to read during here but i'm gonna go in reverse the last time the book mentions game writing uh, it's written to be positive, but it, given today's context, it, it's really ominous. Uh, but it was, given the vast potential audience switching their home television sets to auxiliary modes, this film and television-based media union could no longer ignore the significance of a growing labor force. Furthermore, the video game industry was one of the only media sectors actively hiring a significant number of writers at the time. The industry was changing rapidly, and the guild, as always, wanted to remain relevant. So that's how it ends. Talking about game writing <laughs> is what? Uh, what fictional utopia is this? <laughs> I know. Okay. Then another quote I have here is: it's not talking about game writing specifically, but it's talking about working in the 1990s. And new generations of prospective screenwriters were applying for work in an industry that was busy restructuring itself to reap increasing profits. Many of these writers took positions as flexible contract laborers. As such, their work did not necessarily fall under the jurisdiction of the Writers Guild. Susan Christopherson argued in 2008 that the unions and the guilds in Hollywood were failing in their mission because they generally continue to operate as conventional U.S. unions, that is, by representing their current membership rather than serving as a labor movement. The unions appear to be losing touch with a younger generation that does not perceive union membership as an indicator of having arrived in the media industries. How do you feel that, about that, Rob or Andrew? I, I mean, that's that's really interesting, and I think that you know, uh, depending on when this book was written, um, and I haven't read it, and I'm like, oh, I should probably know more. It's worth reading. It. It, yeah, it also echoes where the guild being late to representing other writing from different mediums, like them with TV and not respecting yeah. TV writing. Yeah, um, but I, I think that one important thing has probably changed since this book was written, which is we are seeing a massive shift in American society and American yeah. culture towards unionization. Uh, I think it was something something like positive views in, in America in general about unions was under 50% uh, a decade ago, and it is now over 70. And I, I mean, 
you know, whether whether that is a generation that grew up after uh, Ronald Reagan and the uh, air traffic controllers, not to get into politics, um, uh, which is some of us on this call, um, uh, you know, which really historically in America is supposedly the moment that broke the back of the labor movement. We've been living like that for 40 years and it has not worked out for workers. Um, and the people who millennials, Gen Z, um, are sick of it. So oh, yeah. I, I, you know, I think the, the, the labor movement and what, once these generations move up into more positions of power and authority within the labor movement and specific unions, I do think that the, the, the more focus on the power of the movement will become a focus of even guilds like the, the WGA. I, I I agree with with that as a sort of global global sort of statement. Well, sort of Western global statement because um, yes. <laughs> uh, it's very different in other places. It's very easy to talk about. Um, yeah, this is how unions work. It, how unions work in the context that we're talking about, in the countries we're talking about, and there'll be different pressures elsewhere. Um, but I think um, the relevance um, that that unions have had uh, unions need to learn from the past and and why some of the negative press has, has been there around unions and um and the whilst there is the demonization of, of unions by those who wish to remove workers rights and so forth there have also been points where legitimately you know there are reasons why unions have got things wrong and i think um learning from those mistakes and listening from membership and listening for those who want to join is vastly important in making the change to make unions relevant um to members and to the industries that, that within which they're representing the members. Um, and I think uh, having that dialogue about what the future is uh, and who the future and who the future is, is important, but trying to contextualize that because I think as, as part of what you're saying, resistance can sometimes come from fear. Um, so people sort of worried that their industries might be eroded uh, or might be seeing a change in, 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 uh, in their influence and income and so forth. So therefore, representing a new industry is a is a threat rather than opportunity, and an opportunity both for uh, potential work and 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 interest for the for the individual, but also for the survival of the union for to bring in new membership and new blood and new ideas to to move things forward. So I think engagement is uh, um, is really important, and diversity of voices is really important. And we also haven't really talked like we've talked about how. The process of trying to convince, like the WJ, how important game writing is to represent them. We haven't really talked much about how, like, it may, when Nick and I first became active with the caucus, we were contract writers, and like it was easy to see the benefits of like we want to become a guild member because we'd love to have health insurance, and also we've been taking advantage of so often in the contracts. Like having help with negotiating good contracts would have been a huge help to us. It could be harder to convince like AAA writers why it'd be worth joining a union or, or the writer's guild because of like they already have health insurance and they like, they feel like they don't need most of the benefits that a guild would give them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, yeah, that's uh, that just a pregnant pause because it's such a serious question. I think that one thing having now very, again, very limited game writing experience, but indie triple a, um, one thing that I do have as a TV writer that game writers do not is the ability to go elsewhere and continue to see a little bit of money from my prior works. Um, you know, uh, 
Marvel Spider-Man 2. Like, I, I, I won't, when that does come out, you know, uh, for my limited contributions to it, you know, um, I'm not going to see royalties or residuals or anything like that because I'm no longer at Insomniac. Whereas I still, every three months, receive a light green envelope with a little bit of money from, you know, foreign residuals or streaming, uh, licensing or whatever for an episode of Lifetime's Army Wives that I wrote a decade ago. It's, it's not going to pay my mortgage. Um, <laughs> but it is a little bit of something. And I'm going to, as long as those things continue to be, uh, to find a home on various platforms, um, I will continue to see that. Um, and so I, I do think that there's the, the ability to, you know, continue to make money off of your serious work um, if you leave the shop or if the shop closes. Um, I think it's very important to writers because our careers are can be roller coasters. I think I think there's a there's a two stage answer to that. Um, I think the first one is. What what did the Romans ever do for us? It's the same questions about unions. What did what did unions ever do for us? Uh, well, weekends. Oh, well, well, apart from like like coming up with weekends, uh, healthcare. Well, well, apart from healthcare, pensions. Yeah. Well, apart from weekends and healthcare and 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 pensions, what have what have you know work unions ever done for us? Uh, well, the sort of safety safety at work and uh, sort of pushing for you know to deal with with harassment and and uh, making sure that laws are passed. Uh, that that sort of look at diversity and and you being safe from uh, um, various sort of forms of attack. Well, what apart from that, what have unions done for me? So I think there's the there's the big question, which is about sort of social quality, which it's it's hard for to, to, to in some cases to argue because it's like, well, are you going to do that for me? Are you going to give me a weekend again? A change as big as the weekend again next week. Well, no, because those things take time and it takes everybody working together and those things happen with unions working together and, and gradually. But those rights are only there because of unions and people want to take those things away. And if you aren't there involved with the, the, the groups of people that are protecting those rights, you'll wake up tomorrow and they'll have gone. So there's that big, broad question, which is why unions are, are, are necessary. And it's not just about you. It's not about tomorrow. It's about all of those things which are fundamental to you and hopefully seeing them improve rather than vanish. Then there's the personal side of it, which is about the insurance policy for if things go wrong, the advice that you can get, um, the protection that's there, but also hopefully that voice on a smaller thing where you're able to talk to other people within the union to get advice and then bring small change or bigger change at the company that you're working in. So I think there's a two-stage discussion to be had with people joining about like the benefits of it on a, on a, on a big stage and on an individual stage about what, what it is that resonates with that, with that person. In terms of engaging with an industry, I think it's good to go in with the idea about things like residuals and so forth, but then really looking at where the industry is right now and then working out where the gains can be made and what's relevant right now and what's really going to be attainable within these points. What's your starting position and what are the things that you're negotiating? What rights already exist and therefore what can be changed? So as you've already touched upon, it's different in animation. It's different uh, in, in uh, agreements through there. So I think looking at the industry from from that perspective and saying okay where where can we engage with the industry without it being 
a completely blank piece of paper. We need to start from where the industry is and look at how we can we can start a conversation based around the starting point. I kept wanting to interrupt you to be like, so no one's ever called you an intellectual before. <laughs> um, uh, it's such a, a, a just such a smart thorough distillation um and i'm also like uh i i it's it's never been more clear how much of an outside perspective i still have than hearing you talk about all of that that was so good yeah (laughs) Uh, well i i stand stand on the shoulders of others uh so um uh again it's about being surrounded by people that are cleverer than you and soaking soaking up their their ethos and and uh and, and thoughts and then putting them through your own filter so thank you. Thanks for being part of that with this conversation, because I'm learning too. Hell yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting because I'll, I'll say, you know, like, again, going to the differences of, you know, TV and film versus game writing and stuff. Um, you know, even though the WGA is a very strong union for TV and film writers, like we haven't figured out how to regulate abusive workplace hours. You know, like we're still working on discrimination in hiring practices and, um, you know, discriminatory and, you know, harassment in the workplace, like reporting structures and all of that. Like it's, it is a, a, a larger human problem in many ways, but, um, you know, uh, it, I know that the union is trying, you know, um, and that's, I think, even if we don't wind up at perfect solutions, I think all you can ask is for someone to hear your issues and to be rowing in the same direction as you to try and fix the problems, even if they don't get all the way there, certainly on the first go. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to say that I've never gone into the office on a weekend, uh, <laughs> uh, but it would be not true. Um, even under WGA contracts, you know, um, people write over holidays and everything because the production machine needs you to. And yeah, I mean, it would, it would be great to, to have in that contract, you know, like <laughs> full stop, my job ends, uh, you know, at 6 PM on Friday and you don't contact me and I don't, uh, have any obligations to work on these scripts that you need on Monday morning for production. But, uh, we don't live in a perfect world, but we can keep trying to make it better. Agreed. Damn good slogan. <laughs> and I just want to acknowledge, like, we've been slamming the WGA a lot with how they treat vegan writers, and, like, there's a lot of good people there, and, like, in a lot of respects, they are trying their best. But I'd like to dunk on them one more time from, what, from the book Max has, uh, because <laughs> there's this quote that I thought was incredible from 1996 from the president of the WGA saying we are deeply involved in preparing our members for the exploding interactive media with frequent seminars, panels, and demonstrations. And I'm just like, one, I want to know, I want to see those panels. I would love to have seen them too. Where, where do they go? They never did anything for that when we were caucus members. The most they would do is the panels for the Marriage Guild Awards every year. There was other, one other quote, which was jumping off like, ha, like having someone fight for you for work-life balance and all that stuff and good hours is really important, but also feels like the increasing consolidation of the industry, which we're watching happening in like movies and TV, with all the, like HBO Discovery and all that stuff, and it's happening in video games too. 
like you're, the guild is at least fighting against the problems that are coming out of all consolidation. Um, but I feel like it's going to get worse for games at some point, and you guys actually could help fight against this. But there's a quote from Marshall Herskovitz, who was a president of the Producers Guild, and this is he was a creator of 30 something. But he had this quote where Ask any showrunner on any network, and they will tell you that the level of control now exerted on any, by network executives over script, direction, cinematography, costumes, even the color of sets, is unprecedented in the history of the medium. Eccentric choices that went into making 30-something, the groundbreaking show that it was, would absolutely never be permitted today. Consolidation of media is turning our artists into employees, and make no mistake, the results will be harmful to our society. I'm of, I'm of the belief that storytellers matter, that art matters, that art helps a society define itself. The consolidation of media inherently endangers the storyteller because to that conglomerate, the story has no inherent value other than as an asset to be exploited. I have no question for that. I just thought it was a good quote. I'm wondering if that was, uh, was that back in like the mid nineties when the FinCEN rules were yeah, it was taken down? Yeah. I mean, and it is, it's only gotten more terrible oh, yeah. uh, with, you know, v- vertical integration across all media. Uh, not great. Mm-hmm. Really uplifting, descriptive note. Not great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll but we're trying to make it better. Yes. Each episode, we have our guests ask a question to our next episode's guests. And our last one, we had Mike Laidlaw and Sarah Bayless. And Mike asked, who is your favorite secondary character in a game and why? And he gave examples of like, someone like an Alec Baldwin, Glenn Larry Genro- Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, somebody who shows up and leaves a massive impact on players and stories or like a really memorable shop merchant in a game. Who are your favorites? I had a, a couple and uh, at first I was like, oh, you know, so-and-so from this movie. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is a video game podcast. Like, yeah, come on, Rob. <laughs> um, uh, so winds up being kind of an important character later in the game's story, but um, the I think it started on PS2, the game Okami. Um, yeah. uh, the character of Susano um, is just this, like, ridiculous, almost if you're if you understand Dragon Ball Z references, uh, almost this Mr. Satan, um, just buffoonish comedic relief presence. Um, but I looked forward to every time that Susano was on screen and every quest that I had to do, uh, involving him because he was just like, he just brought such, such joy and different hilarious energy to a, a, a beautiful game, but one that was, it could be very serious at times. Um, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And, um, still my, uh, my PlayStation avatar, uh, not to, to be a company man with insomniac, but, uh, <laughs> Captain Quark, uh, has been, uh, just a, a delight throughout the years. <laughs> Cause he's ridiculous. And I look forward to every iteration of Ratchet and Clank anytime, Quark comes on. Thank you. Even if you're a company man. Even if I'm a company man. <laughs> I'm not part of the company anymore. I could say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's um, keeping it with the video games because uh, we're talking video games. I think, um, I mean, secondary characters where it's at really the the there can there can be interesting protagonists. It's more of a struggle to make protagonists interesting, I think, than the secondary characters where you can really go to town um you know what what is hades or uncharted or mass effect without the secondary characters you know shepherd is is 
necessarily transparent so that the player can sort of um, explore the world through them. And I don't think that's the only way that you have to write um, protagonists at all. You know, let's look at other, there are lots of very well-rounded or and fun and entertaining protagonists out there, but um, it's the secondary characters that really make everything come alive. Um, and trying to find one answer, uh, I mean, I think for a time, Alex Vance did sort of advanced how secondary characters can work. Now, when you look at her, she's very dated, but at the time, she worked really well and and brought out a lot of things that you could do with characters in there. And and by dated, I'm not having a go at the writing. It's time moves on, thankfully. And but I mean that that character established a lot of models that have then been. Um, uh, taken and built upon. Um, she's a brilliant foundation uh, at that stage. Um, the way that enemies in Shadow of Mordor work, um, oh, from yeah. an out-of-design <laughs> point of view, um, just that that world wouldn't work without those secondary characters, and that's very much just a thing that you can't do outside of games. Um, Kim from Disco Elysium, again, that balance with the, the main character, that and giving heart to that world so i think secondary characters where it's at and now i can't give you one <laughs> god in shadow of mortar when i found out that there was a singing orc that you could fight was <laughs> destroyed me <laughs> <laughs> and also i brought it up four but falcon ron in pyre is still the best shopkeeper of any video game i'm gonna, I'm gonna keep saying it <laughs> and then sarah asked the deepest question what's your experience of creative authenticity within a commercial medium there is and should always be space within within those elements. I, I mean, I, I talked at the start about being putting on the mask to work within different IPs. So I think if you're going into an IP, you need to to read how it works. So there've been various games I've played where I I think writers haven't haven't stuck to those rules and they've gone for a cheap joke or they've gone for a moment that was about expressing themselves and it stood out from the rest of the world. So. I, I think you can be authentic within those spaces, but you need to respect the element that you're, you're working on. I mean, I, st- I did a lot of early work in soap operas on television, and you don't own those characters. The characters are owned by the audience and the history, as well as by you. You know, it's a co-ownership and a co-creation um, with, with them. And I think that's something with a lot of games that you you need to do. So, um, and, and working with that, not to rob, it, rob yourself of anything, but... but um, play within play within the lines um so i think uh you can be authentic you can create but trying to do it within within the structure that's there where you're rewarding the players and the rest of the team by by filling out the world that you're creating as a joint um exercise and then when you get to do some of your own stuff really just going mad (laughs) yeah definitely with your own stuff definitely go mad um you know i think within the more work for hire and we definitely touched on this earlier in the podcast um you know there there are those constraints and like if you try and break them you can try and bend them but if if you break them you will get fired so uh that's that's not necessarily the outcome that we want um uh potentially fired i i do think that you know obviously i spoke on this before um I approach a lot of things from a queer lens and am always trying to diversify um, the experience of a story world by asking, like, where do queer queer people fit into this? When I read something and no one is specifically, you know, called out as queer, there's no particular, you know, queerness to a storyline it doesn't mean that there's no queer characters, you know, and I'll read something. I'd be like, uh, did you know you wrote a gay person? Can we make that canon? 
Um, and sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. And that's, that's fine. I think that the, the important thing for me with that approach is that it shouldn't specifically with LGBTQ plus stuff in larger story worlds that are not about queer issues is about making sure it, it, it deepens the character, but doesn't define the character. Um, because there's not a queer person in this world that goes around being like, I am a gay man, period, end of story. You know? So if it is, if it deepens our understanding of them and their actions and their emotions, great. Sometimes you'll watch things or play things and the, the matter of identity, um, feels like it's just been kind of grafted onto something and it, just seems like it's either fighting the story or just is just so painfully obvious that it was added on because, you know, someone was like, Hey, um, everyone in this story is, is, uh, cisgender heterosexual. So I think like starting from, starting from a place of like, what's the story and where are those, where are those themes shining through that we can like go deeper on? a particular character um, to and flesh out the world so that there's more inclusion. I, I think that's really important. I think know, knowing yourself so that knowing yourself and understanding the process so that when you are creating, you don't, you don't lose yourself. It's not when you, that you don't see it as selling out that you're, you're creating things within that, that represent a voice within you or that represent those elements within the space that you've got to do it where it's appropriate for things. So if you are on a project, if you're on a series of projects or on a project where your ideas aren't being listened to or they don't represent your values, I think there's a, you can ask yourself the question as a starting point of like, is it me? Is it them? And the is it me question is about, are you just wanting to force your ideas onto it? Um, are you pushing the wrong sort of ideas? So it's like you've come in and it's like, look at me. And, you know, on early jobs, it's very easy to do that. And even later on, then when you've done a few of the like similar jobs to that, you, you arrive and it's like, now's my chance and I'm on the stage. You know, is it you that's actually just pushing things that aren't fitting with the rest of the team? Or is it the fact that just they don't want the ideas or your ideas don't fit? And I think it's important to ask those questions so that you can learn and you can, you can, figure out where you fit things and know when to walk away. So if you really are at a stage where you just don't fit, and I've been on projects like that where I remember suggesting a comedy story and there just being a grim response because they only wanted to do gritty realism on this particular TV programme, and it was like, oh, God, I'm in the wrong place. (laughs) But I think it needs to be highlighted with comedy. People aren't just, like, walking um, misery. So I, I... that that was a wrong fit um doesn't mean that the project's wrong doesn't mean that the people making it are wrong i was the wrong fit for it whereas other times it's like actually the resistance i'm getting is because the idea doesn't fit where this is going and actually i can come up with better ideas that fit it um so trying to keep your soul and your your message there and and finding are the ways that will better fit you can have the best idea and the best story, but it's not the best for that project. So you can have an amazing concept, but it just doesn't fit that moment. So understanding that so you can find the thing that's going to work best for that moment and that and that project can allow you authenticity. But if you keep fixated on those ideas, you'll beat yourself to death. So I think finding outlets where you go and write your own things and finding those moments. But if a project is killing you, leave. <laughs> 
But if a project is just your, your, you keep putting square pegs into round holes, can you sand them off so that you find ways of, of, of explaining your message within the space that you've got? That's a great answer. And then what's a storytelling related question you like our next guest to answer? I think because we've come out of one where we've talked a lot about, about unions, I'd love to talk more about craft, and it's been a pleasure to talk about that with you, and let's do that at some other point. Uh, yes. It's been brilliant to talk yeah. about the union stuff. But let's talk a little bit about what are the best ways that we can help diversify the voices in industry, both as practitioners and as characters, and how can we support those to move forward? Mm. Yeah. That's great. Mine is going to be real crap. Because uh, <laughs> um, I just love the nitty gritty. Um, uh, some of our job when we're writing games, you know, a lot of our job deals with um, the working hand in glove in the best scenario with design. And sometimes you just need to, you, you just need a longer hallway to, to get something across. Um, how do you approach as a storyteller? working with other departments to get your needs taken care of that's um, a great question yeah that's not shit that's vital <laughs> that's that's the heart of what we do we all feel Thank the husky that yeah we all feel the hallway problem god my kingdom for a longer hallway <laughs> <laughs> see you've already improved on the original <laughs> <laughs> not not like three days ago where we were having this conversation with somebody. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's then that is going to wrap things up. Uh, do you, either of you have anything to plug or where can people find you on the internet? Um, well, uh, thanks for having me. And it was so great to meet Andrew. Um, uh, before I do um, my uh, usernames, um, I do want to say like, I love my guild. And again, like, you know, uh, we, I do as a member of a guild uh, take, giant dumps on it at times um but again very pro-union um and really just wish that the writers guild of america would get its shit together as far as video games um you can find me on uh the twitters and instagram at rob s foreman f-o-r-m-a-n and uh i will see you there Brilliant. Then, and uh, I'd echo that it's been fantastic to be part of the conversation and to, to, to catch up with you all. I've seen you all on on social media and 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 had the great fortune to play the things that you created. So it's nice to actually be in conversation with you. Um, uh, I, I think uh, for me, you can find me at um, uh, andrewwalsh.com, uh, Really, sort of original naming. Uh, you can find me at, at English Scribe uh, on Twitter. So I, I put out. Um, sort of opportunities and, and thoughts and things on there when I get chance in between everything else. Please do look up at the Writers Guild of Great Britain writing for video games guidelines uh, and keep an eye open for the, the events to come. And yeah, I hope anybody listening to this on either side of the Atlantic or elsewhere who are, who are dealing with the questions of unionization, it's we question what we love. And we wouldn't be having this question about unions if we didn't like value them and value the work that they do. And we look forward to bringing the things that we bring we enjoy together so video games industry for all of its sins and uh, union for all of the issues we want to bring them together so that we can help make both better and i really hope that this conversation helps that so thank you so much for for hosting it and putting it together thank you both i hope it's clear that this is a pro-union podcast <laughs> and also uh 
the guild guidelines that come out of the Writers Guild of Great Britain are great. And even if you're not in Great Britain, if you're in America, a lot of what's in that gu- those guidelines, and I'll link to it in the show notes, are super useful for people in America and Canada and everywhere else. And like totally stuff you can use when uh, looking at your next work and helping get a good contract for yourself. But then you can find this podcast on Twitter at ScriptLockCast and our artwork was done by Lily Nishida and our song by Isabella Ness. And I think that is it. And thank you two again for coming on to the show today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for, thanks for having us and thanks for listening.